This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Apostates Anonymous, the show you turn to when you're no longer an evangelical, or even a Christian. Join hosts Matthew J. DiStefano and Keith Giles as they tip over just about every sacred cow known to man. You're sure to have a good time, if you're a heathen or heretic or apostate or reprobate. If you're an evangelical, maybe you won't have such a good time. But either way, we want you to listen. You can check out Apostates Anonymous wherever you get your podcast fix. Now, on to the show. Welcome to the Wild Olive Podcast, game-changing conversation about literature, culture, and the Bible. I'm your host, Jean Patrol. Your other host, Jennifer Bird, is away from the mic for today. I'm here with a special guest, Deborah Holtstein, who's continuing the conversation about Tony Kushner's play, Angels in America. Deb is an English professor who's had a distinguished career. She's published numerous books and scholarly articles about literature, writing, and technology. She served as editor of a flagship journal in her field and has been a chair and a dean at various institutions. I'm here with her today, though, because she's been writing about medieval Hebrew rhetoric, and she's a fan of Angels in America. Having written about Hebrew rhetoric, having served as the president of a synagogue and now serving on the board of that same synagogue, Deb can help us appreciate more about Kushner's Jewishness and the Jewish traditions that this play is drawing on. Welcome, Deb. It is an honor to be here, Jean. Thank you very much. So we're here to talk about Tony Kushner's Angels in America. And I wonder if you could tell me something that you remember, what you thought, what you felt the first time either you read it or you saw it. Like, how did you first come across Angels in America? Well, it's interesting. I confess that I feel like something of a hypocrite because I've only read it and I read it a very long time ago. And as you know, I've done a lot of work uh, in teaching the plays of Tennessee Williams. And I always insist to my students, whether we read Williams or whether we read uh, Lorraine Hansberry or whether we read Shakespeare, that it's really, really important to see these plays performed. And I confess that I have not seen Angels in America performed. So you have probably led me quite appropriately, since I do have that infernal subscription to the streaming platform now called Max, to see the HBO version of Angels in America. But it's an astonishingly amazing work. And I don't know if this is fair, but I would say that the the incredible ground sown by Tennessee Williams in bringing, I think, American theater, American film into the 20th, if not the 21st century, Angels in America is the heir to that kind of bravery, that kind of deep literacy, that kind of deep understanding of literature, biblical sources, culture, politics, the kind of broad literacy that we hope to impart to our students. Yeah. And Kushner's quite a remarkable example. Yeah, I I feel the same way. And actually, I also, I knew this play on the page before I ever saw it performed. So I'm like you, and I think that that happens a lot with literature scholars, that we read things before we 
view things or even go to see them in the theater. Even when we teach classes in drama, there's a tendency, we're, we're just voracious readers. And so often we meet things on the page before we meet them on the stage or screen. So I get it. Is it um, fair for me to ask you a question? Yes. <laughs> what was the difference for you from the reading to the seeing? The play itself is such a visual feast. It's extraordinary. I think it hit me in the heart more powerfully to see it on the stage. And I, I have also seen the HBO special. And I, I really like it. And it's really fun to see rock star actors play some of these characters. It's really fun. And of course, the special effects are are super fun. I've only seen it twice, once on the stage and, and once as the HBO special. And I think I was more spiritually and emotionally affected when I was encountering the visual spectacle of it, which is just so luscious. Right. And I right. think on the page, it really engages me mentally. I, for, for whatever mm -hmm. reason, I love densely elusive literary works. It's kind of like some people love putting together a puzzle. I, I hate mm -hmm. putting together actual puzzles, but I love literary puzzles. <laughs> right. So this if kind I, of puzzle. Yeah. Right. The, yeah. So I really like it. Um, so I think that's it. The difference between just really being engaged intellectually and then just being really hit emotionally and spiritually a lot harder, I think, once it also was something to experience visually. Absolutely. I mean, as, as I know, I'm not the only one who says this to my students. These are written to be performed. Yes. So clearly, you know, duh, right? But clearly, this adds a layer of emotion and depth that I'm really looking forward to seeing. Yeah, yeah. Listeners, I don't know who has read the play and who hasn't and who's seen it and who has not. I know that we already announced in the first couple of episodes about Angels in America that you can access it on Hulu and lots of libraries have it. So there are a lot of ways to see it. And to Deborah's point, it's worth reading on the page and it's worth seeing the HBO special. It came out in the 90s, so it isn't appearing on stage as often as it was, obviously closer to when it was first produced. But you can certainly get it from the library. And there are also a lot of staged productions that you can access from libraries. So you can see how people have adapted it to stage, or I should say brought it to life for stage, not adapted it. Right. Um, so for anybody who maybe hasn't seen the play, it opens with a rabbi. And the rabbi is speaking at the funeral of someone called Sarah Ironson, who turns out to be the grandmother of one of the main characters, a man called Louis Ironson. And the rabbi is celebrating Sarah's immigration story. And I'm going to read a little bit from that opening. So here's a little piece from the opening. The rabbi says, I do not know her, and yet I know her. She was not a person, but a whole kind of person. The ones who crossed the ocean, who brought with us to America the villages of Russia and Lithuania, and how we struggled and how we fought for the family, for the Jewish home, so that you would not grow up here in this strange place in the melting pot where nothing melted. And this is just one example of how Kushner explores the role of immigration in the evolution of America. Listeners who heard the first two episodes 
will already know this is an epic play. It's got this grand epic sweep. Epics try to put everything in the world in one place. And so it's looking at the United States of America in this unbelievably rich way, immigration and race and gender and colonization and, and religious pluralism and all everything else that you could imagine. So this is one place where we see immigration being explored. And Deborah, I'm wondering if you'd be willing to share a little bit about your own family's immigration story. Yes, I'd be glad to. And thank you for asking. I, um, my family's immigration story is one of loss. Unfortunately, it's one of disappearance. It's one of absorption. It's one of secrets. It's one of trauma. My parents were each the only ones out of their immediate and mostly extended families to have survived the Holocaust. They were both interred in concentration camps. They met after the war, trying to find if they had any family left. Uh, Fortunately and unfortunately, the Germans kept very scrupulous records of whom they had killed, especially in Germany. And they had no one. My father met my mother when he walked into a, I don't know what you would call it, like a a kind of an office, a clearing house, where you would go to see if any of your relatives had survived. And my mother grew up speaking Polish and Yiddish. And in the concentration camps with other women, she had picked up Czech, she had picked up Hungarian, she had picked up German. And so she was a refugee who was working in this particular place. So people of different countries and backgrounds and languages could come to find out if any of their families had survived. And that is how she met my father. They were married in 1946. And it took about three years for them to come to the United States in 1949. And they became United States citizens, um, I think, as soon as they could, which was 1955. And I was born in between That's when they came and when they became citizens. And given that I'm an only child, unfortunately, I have no aunts, no uncles, no first cousins. Um, So it's poignant for me to hear about others' immigration stories where they came, let's say, in the early part of the 20th century. There's a huge extended family. And it's a very, very different sense. And what's interesting is that a lot of what we are thinking about talking about today has to do with issues of survival, loss, forgiveness, triumph. Um, And I suppose that also has something to do with my scholarship, which you've touched on. And by the way, Lost Text has been published. Yay, thank you. and, and, And the but the 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 title of it tells you something about my attempt always to reclaim things that have been lost. Oh, and I think that has yeah. a lot to do with my personal history and my parents' immigration story. Yeah. Oh, gosh, that makes so much sense. And you just gave me a new insight into the play, that idea of recovering things that have been lost. Absolutely. And Absolutely. Go ahead, please continue. No, I was just agreeing with you. I mean, there, there's not that much else to add, except that I, I think I'm somewhat obsessed with different types of preservation. 
Yeah, well, that makes perfect sense to me. And I'm so happy we're having this conversation, both because I want to explore Angels in America with you, but also that helps me understand you uh, better as my friend and colleague. (laughs) So I I appreciate that. I mean, I wouldn't have noticed or realized that about your scholarship, but I, I I do see that your scholarship is about recovering lost things. I think in Angels in America, I also think that the Sarah Ironson thread opening with the rabbi, I think that's also an attempt to recover or preserve lost things. And I have to say that I, I guess I also, now that you mention it, I also think that about Kushner's uses of allusion. He alludes to uh, the, the Bible, the Hebrew Bible. He also alludes to Jewish texts that it's not that they're lost. It's that most people never encounter them, like the book of Enoch. Um, (laughs) Lots of people, you know, will have heard, yeah, of the book of Revelation, but not the book of Enoch. And one of the things I notice about, uh, and also the Talmud and other Jewish texts, the Talmud is not at all lost, but there are other Jewish texts that are more obscure. Well, certainly Kabbalah think, texts. Right. And you, you make a really important point, which is, and I, I'm not delicate in speaking about this, so that I hope that you and your listeners will forgive me. We could take Christians it. will, <laughs> I, know, I know you can. <laughs> Christians will say things like the, the, the Jewish God is a God of vengeance oh, and meanness and destruction. And the yeah. Christian God is a God of love. And the Hebrew Bible is one text upon which many more Jewish texts are based. Yeah. And I know that we want to talk a little bit about the Jacob story. Yes. Which is a story about blessing. Yes. Ultimately. It's yes. a story about there's enough abundant love to go around. Here are all my children gathered around me. We've had this tumultuous part starting out and we end with this abundant love. And so I think your point was very important. Yeah, thank you for that. And thank you for getting us into the Jacob story. I I want to, I actually want (laughs) to connect that to to your family story and just an idea about families. Um, And I want to also say, and we have talked about on this podcast before that old chestnut of the Hebrew Bible having an angry, vengeful God and the Christian Newer Testament having a kind God. God is terrifying in the Newer Testament (laughs) as well in parts. And so there are images of kind and loving abundance and compassion in Mm -hmm. the Hebrew Bible. And there are some, there's some scary God in the Hebrew Bible and there's scary God in the Newer Testament. And there's, um, kind of, you know, kind, abundant God in the Newer Testament also. But I don't know. What's scarier than um, the idea of, uh, you know, a lot of the ideas in, in Revelation, a lot of the ideas about, you know, taking vengeance on Rome. We've, we've done episodes on mm-hmm. that. But back to the idea of mm-hmm. story and back to the story of, of Jacob and also the story of Joseph. One of the things that I notice about families just in the Bible, stories about family, is that family is both a site, S-I-T-E, a yes. site of incredible pain 
and incredible learning and incredible conflict and incredible reconciliation and forgiveness. And I'm thinking of the Jacob and Esau story. Right. Uh, uh, Family is a place where people experience just an avalanche of blessing and where people have their most difficult experiences. And honestly, your family story kind Mm -hmm. of follows that type of archetype. And I think most people's, my family story also is like that incredible pain and incredible blessing. So I'm just reflecting on that off the cuff here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. I'd I'd love to hear more about it if you want to share your family immigration story. I don't know if I'm allowed to ask you questions, Jean. (laughs) Oh, you're absolutely allowed. You're absolutely allowed. But I am keeping my eye on the time. And I still have so many questions for you. that maybe I'll, I will, how about I tell you my family story over coffee? How about that? I'd love it. Any excuse to have coffee with you is good for me. (laughs) All right. So this is kind of a jump cut here. Okay. Um, I want to talk about the Roy Cohn character. Oh, yes. Yeah. Sorry about that. Yeah. And uh, Al Pacino in the HBO special. I can't wait to see Al Pacino, (laughs) who's one of my favorites, play Roy Cohn, a totally despicable human being. Yeah. You know, the thing about Roy Cohn reminds me of a story, if I may, that a friend told me. Yeah. He and his wife were at a fruit stand in Michigan. And I'm not sure how it came up that this man, this friend, is Jewish. Let's say his name is Sam. And these two women, who were not Jewish, said to him, do you think that Madoff, Bernie Madoff, is a good Jew? Oh, dear. And he said, well, of course not. Of course not. It's, it, but it was interesting. I mean dispiriting (laughs) and interesting to me that this one man was supposed to represent an entire complex people. Yeah. In the eyes of of these, of these non-Jewish women. And Roy Cohen is one of those polarizing figures as well. I mean, he's the man who, to use a biblical term, begat Donald Trump. Yes. He taught Donald Trump everything he knows. Yes. And it's a little scary to think about that. And I think what Kushner is teaching us is that there's no, what is the word that I want, Gene, exceptionality? There's no exceptionality to a people. Right. You're going to have horrible people. You're going to have good people. But the important part, and maybe this is jumping ahead, is the fact, is it the the ghost, am I recalling correctly, of Ethel Rosenberg, who says Kaddish? She does. When Roy yeah. Cohn dies of AIDS, he wasn't even 60 yet, I don't yeah. think. Yeah. Um, and why, why would she do that? Yeah. I mean, it's a, not really a rhetorical question, but why would she do that? Why would she say a blessing, which, by the way, is an Aramaic and never mentions death, but we chant it after after a burial and yearly if not every day depending on your take on Judaism um after someone we love or care about dies but we do it to be good human beings yeah so even someone as horrible 
indisputably horrible as Roy Cohn, still should have had someone say Kaddish for him, which given that he brought her, Ethel Rosenberg, (laughs) essentially to her death, was a great mastermind behind her conviction and her husband's conviction, says a lot about forgiveness. Yeah. About, I mean, you know, there's forgiveness. You can be forgiven and there could still be repercussions. Yes. He died. Yes. He died a very painful, horrific death. But you can still be forgiven to a point so that Kaddish would be said for you. Yeah, I think that's I think that's an extraordinary scene um, personally, and that the story that you told about the farmers market is really appalling. That would be like letting the January six insurrectionists represent all Christians. I mean, that would be right, and, and, but that's what happens to minority people of minority faiths. Yeah, as as you well know. So, but it reminded me very much of the Roy Cohn thing. In other words, because Roy Cohen was Jewish, does that represent all Jewish people? Does that fit into the stereotype of, oh, he was such a crook. Oh, he was so manipulative. Oh, he really worked the angles. Yeah. That's, uh, that's why I think the, the um, remarkable Ethel Rosenberg yeah. saying Kaddish is so important. And poignant. Yeah. It says a lot about Judaism and a lot about Kushner and a lot about the play. Yeah. Um, that scene is so moving to me because it is this incredible picture of forgiveness and reconciliation. And I feel like it's just seared on my heart, as is, I will say, to take it back to the Jacob story. I was just going to say, yes. Yeah. And just for for listeners, if people haven't read it recently. So in the story of Jacob and Esau, the story goes that Jacob, Jacob is kind of a trickster figure. I see him as a trickster figure. And he uh, manages to get Esau to uh, give him, Jacob, his birthright. So in ancient, ancient Hebrew culture, the oldest son would always get the birthright, but Jacob and his mom do some tricky business and they, to make a long story short, they manage to get Jacob the birthright and the blessing. And so that was Jacob, meant for Esau, right? It was, it was meant for Esau. So Esau is understandably absolutely furious, like homicidally furious when this first happens. And he tries to go take revenge on Jacob, but Jacob has fled and Jacob goes to another area and there gets married and has 12 sons, famously 12 (laughs) sons, also has daughters, I will add, um, has a daughter. And then Jacob, I should mention that, I mean, in the ancient world, population is wealth. So Jacob has a huge family, many sons and daughters, and also a lot of sheep, a lot of goats, like a lot of, I mean, they're, they're herds people. So wealth is measured in animals and land and wives and, and children. And so Jacob becomes unbelievably wealthy. 
And then, but he's homesick. He wants to go back home. He wants to see his brother, but he's really scared. And he figures Esau will still really be mad. And he tries to send all these gifts ahead of himself so that Esau will maybe forgive him. But actually, Esau had let it go a long time ago. And the only thing that he cares about is seeing his brother. And I get choked up every time I think about the scene because Jacob is expecting this huge comeuppance and wants Mm -hmm. to give all these gifts to try to make amends. And it's just not necessary for Esau. He just says seeing seeing her face again is, is enough. Right. One of the number of things that I've read, it's quite a story, says something like, and this is speaking of whoever was reading this particular article, we are God wrestlers. Yeah. She was speaking primarily of the Jewish people, I think. We are God wrestlers. We we fight with God yeah. you know, as, be- yeah. as best we can rhetorically. But this story says, and this particular article said, but we can also choose to bless each other with an abundant love. Mm. And that's what often get, gets lost when in general conversations about the Hebrew Bible. So it's an, you're right. It's an incredible story to talk about. Yeah. I would like to do a little bit more reading. Uh, one of them. Okay, please. Um, I just, I just want to get you to react to this. So okay. one of Kushner's characters, as we've already talked about, is a closeted gay Mormon character called Joe. Joe, and, yes. Yeah. And he experiences the story of Jacob with the homoerotic charge. I just want to read that and just kind of okay. get your reactions. I just want to get your Please. reactions. So uh, this is Joe. Joe says he's talking to his wife, Harper. Um, Harper and Joe. Harper is just beginning to realize, okay, Joe is gay. And Joe is just realizing, okay, I'm gay. <laughs> right? Uh, they're both, it's dawning on them. Um, and Joe says, I had a book of Bible stories when I was a kid. There was a picture I'd look at 20 times every day. Jacob wrestles with the angel. I don't really remember the story or why the wrestling, just the picture. Jacob is young and very strong. The angel is a beautiful man with golden hair and wings. Of course, in a Christian Bible, that is what you would see. Um, golden hair and wings. I still dream about it. Many nights, I'm, it's me in that struggle, fierce and unfair. The angel is not human and it holds nothing back. So how could anyone human win? What kind of a fight is that? It's not just. Losing means your soul thrown down in the dust, your heart torn out from God's. But you can't not lose. And that's the end of that quote. I'm just curious if you have reactions to that. Um, I... I'm thinking of your introduction to that passage about uh, the story of Jacob and his having seen, uh, um, Joe having seen it with a homoerotic charge. Yeah. And there's no question that depictions of that struggle yeah. have had that overlay. So the question is, no pun intended, overlay. So the mm-hmm. the question is, is that something we read in the text, allowing for obviously different translations of the Bible? 
Or is that something that's an overlay of particular artists who choose to see it at that, as that kind of struggle? Um, because that too would be an interpretation of a particular text. I don't know. I'd like to, what do you think? What have you thought of that well, particular I think it's, passage? I think it's, it's certainly there. And I guess what I love, um, so I think this comes down to where we think meaning lives. And I've had this conversation with Jennifer uh, Bird many times where, you know, what, whoever the original storytellers were, whoever were the scribes and priests who wrote it down and copied this story, um, whoever told this story certainly may have intended some meanings and not others, but it doesn't mean that there's not that meaning there because exactly right. Meaning also lives in the person who's making the meaning, the text, the storyteller, the text, and then the person receiving the text right. also makes meaning. I mean, that's how I see it. And I think that that tends to be how literature scholars see it. A lot of biblical scholars tend to see it in terms of, well, is the meaning there? in the text, or is it not? And I get that way of thinking about texts also, but I think as literature scholars, we tend to think of meaning as living in a lot of different places. And also, exactly. you make a play like Angels in America, and it changes the meaning of the ancient story, for real. Exactly. Uh, and, I think and meaning is fluid like that. Go ahead. Absolutely. And then we also have the numerous translations of yes. the Bible. Um, I'm thinking of, you know, and, and you've probably directed your listeners to this, but Robert Alter yeah. uh, finished his amazingly wonderful, huge translation of the Hebrew Bible. And maybe his translation, for instance, of the 23rd Psalm isn't as poetic and readily accessible as the King James Version, yeah. but it's different. And yeah. he would argue, I think, more faithful. Yeah. So obviously, these translations give interpretation. Um, and there are people, as you know, who love to use the Hebrew Bible to point toward the Christian Bible. And, who and a lot of this has to do with translation, with interpretation. But you're right. As soon as something is written, as soon as something is painted, as soon as something is photographed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Once it leaves the author, yes. as long as you can be fair and judicious about how you interpret a particular text, whether visual or written or whatever, um, it's open. It becomes open and it may not have been intention. And it can, as you say, it can very much still be there. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And thanks for bringing up the idea that many Christians read the Hebrew Bible as if it's always pointing to Jesus. And what many biblical scholars say is if you want to creatively interpret that way, you can, you can, you can do that, mm -hmm. but you should at least be aware that you're doing that. Exactly. Be aware of the lens. Um, mm -hmm. I want to read you the, one more passage. Please. And 
our our editor Matt Byrne is going to have to bleep out a swear because we don't actually have swears on this podcast, but it's in the play, so I'm going to read it. But it'll <laughs> in the final it'll come out as peep. So um, cool. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, this is Roy. Roy is talking to Joe. They're having a conversation on Roy's deathbed, and Roy has a characterization of Jacob that I have to confess I find shocking. I don't very often feel shocked by a work of literature, but I find this very shocking and I just wanted to get your reaction. And then I just have one more question and we can wrap it up. So this is what Roy says. Um, actually, let me, let me back up a, a little bit. Um, Joe is kind of talking to Roy and Roy feels like Joe is beating around the bush and Roy says, shh, Mendrick, don't fuck up the magic. A broker. You don't even have to trick it out of me. Like, what's his name in the Bible? And Joe says, Jacob. Roy says, that's the one. A ruthless motherfucker. Some bald runt. But he laid hold of his birthright with his claws and his teeth. Jacob's father. What's the guy's name? Isaac. Yeah, the sacrifice. That jerk. My mother read <laughs> me those stories. So Roy just has this. Really? crass i'd say i mean that's my reading right um ruthless way of reading the text and um i just wondered if you want to react to that do you feel as shocked as i do or not so much no not i not so much given the character of what we what we think we know about roy Cohn. um but it also could be a warning against a certain kind of cut and dry interpretation of anything. Good point. You know, it, it could be, it could be, look at this guy just making a very cut and dried assessment of what this is all about. When in fact, on Rosh Hashanah, we, we read the binding of Isaac. We, we, we read that, you know, and our rabbi Max Weiss starts out with, we are profoundly disturbed by this. We don't read it, at least not at Oak Park Temple, B'nai Abraham Zion. It's yeah. like, oh, oh, yeah, we're supposed to do that. We're supposed to go up there. We're supposed to, you know. Yeah. Hey, where are you? He, nay, nay, here I am, you know. Yeah, yeah. We talk about how disturbing it is. So, again, we wrestle with God. Yeah. And I do really think that this little Roy Cohn bit here is not, not only tells us something about what perhaps Kushner wants us to believe about his character and the sadness with which he, to us, with which he views the universe as cynical, as, as cynically as he does, but also, as I said, perhaps as a warning about certain ways of viewing the world as not being as complex as they really are. Yeah. That's that's very well said. Um, <laughs> I'm looking at the time and I'm thinking it's probably a good time to wrap up, but I have one more question for you. <laughs> oh, goodness gracious. Go ahead. Is there anything that you haven't been asked that you wish I had asked you about the Jacob stories or about the Kushner play or about angels? How do we feel? How do you and I feel that this play is still... I keep bringing up Tennessee Williams, who I think is yeah. still completely relevant to modern day life. How is this play more significant 
than it was even when it first appeared. Oh, my goodness. That is, that's a wonderful question. Um, Thank you. Yeah. So it first appears, yeah, go ahead. So it first appears in, and um, in the Reagan kind of era, it's, its subject is the Reagan era AIDS Mm -hmm. back to the McCarthy era, one, a very dark period uh, in American history, although of course we are superseding that to a, unfortunately to a good extent. Every single thing that seems to happen in the past, as Thomas Jefferson, who I'm not supposed to quote anymore, would say, the past is prologue. Yeah. And in fact, these these points in history, the 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 horrific AIDS crisis, all of this, just points to much of what we're experiencing now. The past does, in fact, shed light on the present. I'd like to know what you think. I really agree with that. And when I think about angels, and I teach it regularly, and I wrote about it recently, so I guess one thing that I find both unnerving and also just very meaningful to me. I I look to literature to make meaning and beauty out of Mm -hmm. terror, out of, out of terror. And the things that are referenced in angels of America, like the fall of the Berlin wall, like the end of the Soviet union, like the Chernobyl disaster, like not right now, Chernobyl, Everyone's terrified that Chernobyl is going to melt down again. Um, Right. You know, we already had one Chernobyl disaster, and now there are other nuclear power stations in Ukraine where we're we're terrified that they're going to melt down. So this specter of nuclear meltdown is still with us. And it's very weird to read. I mean, there are these lines in the play where characters are gleeful that the end of the Soviet Union, the end of the Cold War, it's a new era, it's a new time, uh, it is the threshold of something new, and here we are, right? With and now Russia. we have now we have yeah Putin, right? We we have Putin. Now we have Putin. Like, we, we, somebody's going to build the wall again, right? Build the wall. Build and the now wall. we have and we and we've had a pandemic. We've had a pandemic. And if yeah. and if Ukraine falls, Poland could be next. Yes, and you know there's. It's remarkable. So angels, you know, and and someone wrote this in, in using these words, angels presents a staggering range of concerns. Yes, that's right? true. Yeah. The migration of the Mormons, the McCarthy hearings, historical figures like Cohen and the Rosenbergs. Yeah. Reagan, AIDS. And yet it is so much a, a remarkable piece of work that very much informs our present. I do agree with that. And I feel like that's a really good place to end. So thank you so much for talking with me, Deborah. Thank you, Jean, very much. I really appreciate it. Yeah. And listeners, thank you for listening. We know that you have a lot of podcasts you can listen to, and you have a lot of ways that you can spend your time. And I'm really honored that you spent some of your time with us. Thank you. Hey, this is Matt Byrne, editor and producer for the podcast. 
thank you for listening to Season 2, Episode 3 of Wild Olive. If you like game-changing conversations about literature, culture, and the Bible, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell some friends about the show. You can find episode notes at wildolivebibleandculture.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Just search Wild Olive. You may have noticed we changed our schedule recently. New episodes are now on the first and third Fridays of each month. Our music is composed by Nick Stubblefield. Audio produced by Clara Carrera and Matt Byrne. Want to ask a question? Email the podcast at connect at wildolivebibleandculture.org. Hey, we'll catch you next time for more wild conversations. We'll see you then.